You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Jordan Broking, and thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, we're going to hear from our news director, Becca Gatto, as they speak with two representatives and abortion stigma and WICB news correspondent Caroline Grass as she spoke with an Ithaca College alumni who recounted their time with the band's visit. But first, we have Anushree Sukumaran and Blake Matthews with Community Beat and George Christopher with this week's Politics Beat. A 28-year-old Ithaca man named Austin Schiller has been arrested this past Thursday after he made a threat that he would carry out a mass killing of Cornell University students and Ithaca police officers. Police have now charged the man with the felony of making a terroristic threat. Schiller was arraigned at Ithaca City Court and remanded to the Tompkins County Jail in lieu of $50,000 cash bail, $50,000 credit, or 10% of a $50,000 partially secured surety bond. In Ithaca, New York, the Tompkins County Health Department is warning the community about increasing levels of Lignola bacteria. This bacteria was first detected in the cooling tower at the Mental Health Building on Green Street in Ithaca. The exposure to this bacteria can cause pneumonia. The integrated water management is decontaminating the water at the tower, but health officials say that the contamination risk for the public is low. Since New York Governor Kathy Hochul has lifted the mask mandate on public transportation, effective immediately, masks are no longer required to be worn on the TCAT by passengers or drivers. Police have charged two Ithacans after an argument with the TCAT bus driver. The bus driver reported that he told the two passengers to leave the bus due to disruption. Both Ithacans were charged with second-degree harassment for the incident. The Tonkins County Public Health Department and the Mental Health Department have jointly released a report that identified areas where the two departments could be improved and have outlined a plan to integrate both departments into one unit in order to streamline operations and make the government more efficient. Despite delays, the plan to integrate the two departments into one unit is now starting the next steps into reforming the county charter. The Ithaca Fraternal Order of Eagles, hash 1253, held a spaghetti dinner fundraiser this evening to contribute to the Cancer Resource Center of Finger Lakes. For Blake Matthews, I'm Anushree Sukumaran. This is your weekly politics beat. I'm George Christopher. Tompkins County Administrator Lisa Holmes has proposed the county's 2023 budget. According to the Ithaca Voice, the budget calls for $207 million in spending, an increase over 2022's $195 million budget. The county will be employing 796 workers in 2023, another increase from 2022. Economically, the county has seen unemployment remain low at 3.2%, while inflation remains high at 8.1% in July. The county has also seen fewer people rely on social programs, such as SNAP. The proposal also includes a 1.46% tax levy increase, which fall below the county legislature's proposed number. Governor Kathy Hochul has declared a state of emergency in New York State after the polio virus was detected on Long Island. According to the New York Times, the declaration will expand the number of people who can administer the polio vaccine. 
The virus was first detected in Rockland County in July, making it the first polio case in the United States in almost a decade. Officials say the virus shed from someone who took an oral polio vaccine, which hasn't been used in the United States in over 20 years. The oral vaccine is safe, but does include a live, weakened virus, which can circulate if communities are under-vaccinated. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been charged in Manhattan with six counts including money laundering, conspiracy, and scheming to defraud. According to Politico, Bannon's We Build the Wall group raised $15 million to erect a border wall between the United States and Mexico. Bannon's group allegedly skimmed donations made to the group. Bannon was previously charged federally, but was pardoned by former President Trump before the end of his presidency. Reporting for Ithaca Now, I'm George Christopher. You're listening to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Jordan Brokang. End Abortion Stigma is an organization that was created to try and disprove a lot of the typical stigmas that were set in place by the patriarchy. News Director Beck Legato spoke with Caroline Cox, a member of EAS, who spoke on what her organization is and how they continue in this new political environment following Dobbs v. Jackson in the fourth part of an ongoing series exploring different abortion resources for women in Tompkins County. On July 6th of this year, Ithaca was officially declared a sanctuary town for reproductive health care and abortions in response to the overturning of the historic Roe v. Wade. With a women's right to an abortion left to the decision of politicians, the Ithaca Common Council created and passed a bill that would assure safe abortions and reproductive health care to continue in the Ithaca area, labeling Ithaca a sanctuary town and assuring safe health care without the fear of any legal retribution. Multiple organizations in the local area also continue to operate and provide support for women who need a place to stay or talk. One of these resources calls themselves End Abortion Stigma, and they're a group of people who were created to destigmatize the idea of an abortion and allow for honest conversations regarding abortions. I spoke with Caroline Cox in this second part of a two-part interview, which is, who is one of the founding members of End Abortion Stigma and has worked on a wide range of issues from abortion activism to creating an environmental education fund that was lumped into a grant that would focus on mitigating damage done to the environment in the local region. Make sure to tune into the first part of this series to hear our conversation with Sue Perlgut, available on all podcast platforms and on our website, wicb.org news. This is the second part of our conversation and the fourth part of an ongoing series highlighting the members of the Tompkins County community that help provide abortion or reproductive health care for women or people with the ability to bear children. To start off the second part, I continued to speak with Caroline and asked about her background having worked at both Cornell University and Ithaca College. I grew up in the South, and um, I was very involved in civil rights. I, left, I led marches in, in Greensboro. I was at the then Women's College of the University of North Carolina, um, and um, my major was Southeast Asian history, and I did teach-ins on the Vietnam War. So activism has always been something I've done. I went into the Peace Corps, and that's where I had an abortion in another country, in a Catholic country, and no, no birth control, no nothing. And it was 
highly illegal. I was lucky. Um, but then I had a second abortion because this person I was seeing, um, there was violence. And um, so I asked to be transferred. And I then worked in Peace Corps, Washington and sought an abortion in my home state and went to the university where I had graduated eventually um, and went to the uh, physician, the woman physician at the student center and she lambasted me. It was, you know, it was the direct fundamentalist interpretation. I was a sinner, I was an evil person. And so I ended up having a second abortion in um, Washington and with very different environment. And it's the contrast we are now living with. Absolutely contrast. So um, fast forward, went back after Peace Corps Washington, I got married and um, we went through graduate school and then came up to Ithaca. My former husband and I went, I was in a PhD program. And I wasn't an activist, particularly, you know, two children. And they happened to still be in the community. And um, it's, my activism has not been on the campuses. It's been through community activities. I've been very involved with activist theater. I've been very actively involved on boards, community foundation, CAP, suicide prevention, the old AIDS work. Um, and then in suicide prevention, it was with getting the nets around the campus. And there was a huge blowback in the community. You can't ruin our view wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> no. Um, so there's in you know, community activism, um, but it's fostered by living in a college community where inquiry is the name of the game. And inquiry means listening to all kinds of points of view and then coming up with your own actions built on what you feel or, or think. I, I do want to contrast, think, not feel, um, where justice lies. And um, so working on both campuses, I came to Cornell when the Berrigan brothers were speaking, went to Washington because that's what they said to do. Um, you know, it's always been a part of active inquiry translated to active identity of where one can make a difference to protect others. And it's, it's to me, on a campus, you really are looking at either the lauding of an individual or a broadening of a sense of how a community is formed and where a community is going. And I'm, there was a term in the 90s about Unitarianism. It's about 
being involved with communities. And I'd like to think that campuses foster that more than individualism, because we seem to be in an era of individualism. This idea of community and breaking down the stigma and expectation of individualism became a large part of Caroline's cause. Going back to storytelling, because it allows one's imagination, if you're in the audience, to say, oh, that's my aunt, that's my mother, that's my grandmother, that's someone I identify with. That's a person I'll see in the grocery store. That's someone who has been in the same campus I'm on now. Um, it's, it's whatever storytelling is, it's one of the great human strengths. It's how our ethos is developed and argued. It's how we work as humans, as society builders. And stigma, stigma wins if nobody speaks up. And so it's the speaking up and out that helps diminish stigma. We'll always have that because that's what humans also do. How do you know you're part of my tribe if I don't have to castigate those people because they're not part of my tribe? And um, our tribe is all over the place, <laughs> you know, but, but some people need the comfort of saying, oh, no, that's not, not part of my group. Um, so our, our effort is, you know, just reaching out as much as we can and having others feel empowered to then reach out even more. And so it's not always a measurable success, but it certainly is a driving impetus. And I was wondering, how are you able to use education as a way of bonding and learning more about those around you? The word I would use is curiosity. It's trying to explore new things and challenge. I'm speaking personally, speaking for myself. Um, I think education is about learning how to learn. Um, I made a joke to my mother when I graduated undergraduate school and said, oh, I feel as though as a humanities major, I was in history and political science, um, I'm ready for a cocktail party. You know, she was horrified. I was hoping I could go into the foreign service, right? <laughs> but the idea was, and seriousness underneath it was meant to be, oh, I now know how to listen for other ideas to shape or reshape mine and to keep asking questions. And that's what I think education is ultimately about. Think of Socrates with, or Plato you know, with their schools, students around them. Um, that's where it is. You know, it's listening, it's asking. It's listening, it's asking. Um, and so that, you know, Sue is idealistic, so am I. But my idealism is more about the intellectual experience that then drives the moral experience. And um, I think 
that's why I've always been honored to be able to work in an, an educational environment. And um, you mentioned the fund that my husband and I have started at the Community Foundation. Um, that is about the lake. That is about how do we protect the lake? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? How do we protect our environment? And um, the environment can be defined a lot of ways, I guess, politically too. Um, but in that case, it's that while I'm not uh, an environmental scientist, nor is my husband, it is what defines our living here. And um, it's one example of uh, hoping to promote education around preserving and enhancing the lake. Um, but there are so many other ways of taking that model and applying it to other questions. Hope is something that Caroline never seemed to lack. I wanted to know more about how she can remain positive, even with all that goes on in the world. Because all hope is not lost. One can allow a day to be angry, sad, even indulge in bitterness. But then if, if everybody does that, then stigma, anger, viciousness has won. And so um, the next day, it's taking that next step. And um, measuring success may change. But measuring progress may change, but it's what has to keep an individual going forward to saying, okay, I'm part of a community. I want to be a positive part. And how can I do that? And so that question keeps coming back. Am I doing the right thing? Is there another way of doing it? Um, you know, some of us who write are able to make that happen in a different form from those who make films and different from those who are health practitioners. So we all find where we have skill sets and then try our best to make them help make a difference that helps others. Circling back to a comment Caroline had said about creating educational pieces in not just print format, but also video and audio, I wanted to learn more about how the organization works and who was really in charge. In the context of EAS, one of the interesting things to me is where I've worked in hierarchical organizations, my professional life, um, this is an, what I call a horizontal organization, uh, meaning there is no president, there is no committee structure per se, except we devolve into, well, what are your strengths this week? <laughs> and who do you know? And what's your schedule like? And so it's, it's, it's a negotiable thing. And, and the 15 members or 14 members, um, that's my loose counting right now. There are technically 14 members. There's another person who's um, probably going to join us in two weeks. Um, but we have other 
people who are allies who have been part of our group, but for a variety of reasons, often health reasons, they've had to pull back, but they're still engaged in one form or another. Um, so there's a lot of um, communication. We, we have, you know, uh, we, we keep our agendas as formal records, but it's also a way of communicating, this is what we're doing, this is what we've done. Um, and, you know, just as a side note, speaking of education, libraries are the heart of education, from my perspective. Um, and uh, we were talking with the Cornell University Archives about taking our records um, and keeping them as part of the, they have a, uh, feminism and sexuality archive and adding a, our records to that right? because you know that's what education is also doing it is the repository of what's happened and how people have addressed various issues so yeah that's so inspiring that you're able to add some of your work to um, the records that's amazing yeah and it's gratifying too I mean you know it's easy to just sort of drill down and say oh it's this little group of you know old ladies at one point uh, but not everybody now on our group is an old lady um, and um, to say oh well maybe for future scholars there will be something that we're doing that will be of interest to them and they can then share it in that educational way on the days where you know one gets a little down that is another way of saying oh okay we're, we're trying <laughs> our bodies their laws was an event held recently on cornell university's campus and included multiple different abortion organizations in the local area including the planned parenthood of cornell and of course end abortion stigma they were there to provide information about what each of their respective groups provide for individuals with the ability to give birth, and also had a couple of different amenities there for visitors as well. Yeah, well, the event was under the aegis of the feminist sex, gender sexuality studies program, and uh, there was a an organizing committee of two faculty members, a member of the uh, Cornell Health Center of Gannett um, uh, counseling staff, and then some staff members who support each of those programs. Um, and they invited um, the PPGA, you know, the Planned Parenthood student groups of both IC and Cornell, and they had a tent. There was a tent for um, Oh dear, I'm going to get this wrong. It's the one of the women's advocacy groups here in town, and they want and then EAS and um, then the health center itself had a, kind of a freebie uh, table. Actually, it was two. Actually, it was three tables. As I think about it, of you know things that might interest students. Um, everything from snacks to you know anxiety devices, anxiety reducing devices, enough anxiety on a campus, right? Um, and um, 
then uh, there were two speakers. Uh, one was Jess Newman, who is a resident professor in the program, um, simply to talk about why do we have all of these groups here? What's, why now? And um, uh, then I spoke and talked a little bit about the context of the times and uh, the CPCs and voting. And um, because there was a flow of students, Jess and I spoke a couple of times. Um, the other tent, we uh, let me tell you how it was arranged. Do you know where um, Olin Library is and then the Arts Quad? Okay, well, in between Olin and the Quad, um, they had placed these tents and then there was a separate tent called the Vent Tent. And that brought people who, for various reasons, wanted to talk candidly about their personal experiences, whatever that meant. And there were counselors there. And uh, one of our EAS members um, went in as well, and she'd been a counselor for 30 years at Planned Parenthood. So, you know, she's well placed. And um, that apparently was a very effective and very important tent because, you know, there is a triggering. You know, people may not have talked, as my little anecdote about the origin story of the EAS. Um, had not talked for decades about this. Um, so it was a gorgeous day. It was from one o'clock until three o'clock. There were four EAS members at our tent and they talked all the time. There was a steady flow of people and um, included faculty members, included graduate students, included upperclassmen and freshmen. And our group came away with, we were startled by the ignorance of, of CPCs, um, but also the need to understand, the need to know, the, you know, a real hunger for, well, tell me more. I, I, I need to understand because there is a sense, these are students coming from all over the world. And they know that the U.S. is dealing with a very serious question that revolves around reproductive justice. Um, so your question was, how did we think it worked? For us, we thought it was a wonderfully positive event um, because people were learning back to education. They were asking questions. We offered some guidance about where to find answers. There were others around us who could provide other answers. And so that, it really was the circle of education. It really was that moment of, you know, being able to share what knowledge we had and help others form their own knowledge. And so it, it really, it was inspiring. It was confirming that this is the right thing to do um, in the spirit of, we don't have all the answers, but if there are questions that we can answer, then we're here to say something. Um, so it was quite positive. I will add, there was also a Quidditch match. 
so it was a it was a great campus event, but um, you know because it was the range of what happens. You get to play, you get to learn, and and uh, we had a debriefing on Tuesday, and everyone there had the same experience. All the folks who had been part of the planning. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, let's go back to the word stigma. It was a way of diffusing stigma. Rachel Jacob, one of the co-presidents of PPGA at Cornell, spoke to the Cornell Sun about her take on the event, saying, quote, it's sad that it took something so bad happening for this many people to care. Caroline respected her opinion and added on to it. That was her position, you know? I think it's what I hear reflected in it is when she uses the word sad, it's because how do we go forward? And that's what that event was all about, is these are the ways we go forward. We learn, we find out steps we can take, we learn how we can help others, we learn where there are resources already established. At the same time, there were others who said, I am angry. You know, it's an emotional response that's seeking a physical response of action. And so, of course, of course, it's, it's you know, when we started, our group had a strong sense that this is where it was headed. Not everybody was thinking about this. Not everybody had the time or the inclination to think about it. Um, so sad was her response. Angry was another person's response. Um, you know, and we go back and forth. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot. And when you're talking as a young person, it's about what is my life going to be like in this kind of framework? And we're trying to say, we've been there and we, there are ways that coming together, we can, we can make a change. And it's, it's, but we can't be quiet. So I, I think she's just reflecting on th this is a sort of gathering that ought to have happened before, but it doesn't mean it won't happen again. In fact, that program is doing two other workshops this fall. One is at the law school at Cornell where they're talking about the legal implications and it's the legal faculty talking about since Dobbs decision and um, what's happening in the election. And then in either late October or early November, I beg your pardon, the legal program is gonna be on September 16th. Third program this semester will be either October or November. And that's really gonna look at the implications on the LGBTQ community. And um, then they're hoping to develop some other workshops in the spring semester, um, but nothing, out on the campus as a welcoming, um, you know, but it's, it's a model that health centers uh, may well consider, you know, that 
there are all sorts of things out there that when you bring a new community together, they may need some kind of common survival knowledge. <laughs> and it isn't just about reproductive justice, it's about you know, the viruses out there, you know, all sorts of things, you know, financial life, and, you know, it's, it's what orientations ideally do. Uh, but post-COVID, what's an orientation, right? <laughs> Caroline concluded our conversation talking about how to broaden tough conversations to multiple different communities. Well, I think the issue of broadening the conversation with a variety of communities is, is something that I'm very concerned about. And um, all the campuses have that same question. And I don't know how, in some ways it has to be addressed by breaking off and make strengthening each of the groups, if one has to think of groups. Um, and this is where I have old fashioned thinking. Of, you know, it's not kumbaya, but it's the sense that we're all humans, but that's not how our societies have been structured. And so we have to start where we are. And um, I think in the work of the EAS, if we can help others um, and broaden who others are um, to reduce stigma and open opportunities for personal choice, that would be great. This is the second part to a two-part interview with End Abortion Stigma. Check out wicb.org news or SoundCloud for the per first part of this interview. End Abortion Stigma also hosts and helps with events in the local area and can be found on their Facebook page. For WICB News, I'm Beck Legato. The Band's Visit was a book that was transformed into a musical about a band that's supposed to travel to Beta Tikva, but due to confusion and one of the characters' accent, the band ends up in a completely different town and has to find their way back to perform. WICB News correspondent Caroline Grass spoke with Ali Borshagi, an Ithaca College alumni, about his experience on the stage. For the past year, a musical called The Band's Visit went on tour, stopping at cities throughout the United States, telling the story of an Egyptian band visiting Israel and getting lost on their way. As spectators gathered in dark theaters to watch this critically acclaimed show, they were swept off their feet with a story of how music can bring people from vastly different worlds together. And as viewers opened their programs and read about the actors starring in the production, they would find Ithaca alumni Ali Borjgi listed as performing in his debut national tour. A couple months after school, I booked the Bands Visit National Tour, which, speaking of like dreams, was that was like my dream show. So that was like an insane experience for me. But yeah, you traveled the show, and it was a special show for me because I'm very proud of my my culture and my heritage of being a Arab American and being Muslim. And this show is sort of not only like my first professional job, but also a way to connect my like professional interests to my culture and kind of combine those in one. The Band's Visit is a book written by Itamar Moses with lyrics and music by David Yazbek. The stage performance is based on a 2007 Israeli film and started off-Broadway in 2016, premiered on Broadway in 2017, and won 10 Tony Awards, making it one of the most Tony-winning musicals in history. 
The story takes place in 1996 and focuses on the Alexandria Ceremonial Police Orchestra, who has been asked to perform at an Arab culture center in Israel. The town they are supposed to travel to is Beta Tikva, but due to the character Aled's Egyptian accent and confusion when buying bus tickets, the band ends up in a town with a similar name of Beta Tikva. Stuck in the town overnight, the band stays with residents and forges connections through music. When the musicians leave the next day for the correct town of Beta Tikva to perform, both groups leave having formed connections across cultures over friendship, love, and loss. To me, it's, it's about breaking down breaking down walls that are there for no good reason other than uh, original personal bias or, or something that you get from the world around you. Breaking down that, just talking to people, human to human, and, and realizing that, that, that strangers usually have a lot to give and that we're all a lot more alike than we think. The show is just so beautiful because it, it, it's not afraid of silence. There's so many, I mean, <laughs> when I actually like looked at my lines and if I were to just take my lines and put them into one document, I, I'm sure it wouldn't even be more than four or five pages, that's a guess, but <laughs> I think so because it, it, there's just so many moments of the characters being with each other, experiencing their closeness and, and, and sharing moments over music, really, and, and sharing um, sharing the awkwardness of not being able to speak the same language and recognizing that they have the same problems even though they're in two entirely different worlds. The work I like to do, I'm more drawn to the uh, things that are simple, that are honest, that are real, that are about human connections and that open our eyes to maybe embracing strangers or embracing other cultures or seeing uh, different people in a more positive light than we might have imagined them before. Borski graduated from the Ithaca College BFA Musical Theater Program in 2021 and has performed in musicals, plays, and short films for the college and other theaters. He also writes and produces music and said one day he hopes to be in films and movies. Borski talked about how much he enjoyed performing in the band's visit and said it aligned with his mission statement as an actor, singer, musician, and creator of Middle Eastern and African descent. Borski grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. His dad immigrated to the United States from Morocco while his mom grew up in Pittsfield. He said he was able to celebrate both cultures at home and said the area he grew up in was a hub of art, culture, and theater, which helped foster his love for performing. I grew up in a household that was half Muslim and half this like whole Moroccan culture thing and then also half American and and, and my mom is Christian so like I got kind of the, the dual celebrations of Eid and then Christmas and so I got a, a combination of everything which was awesome in a way and then also in other ways just growing up with the combination of um, kind of only having like a half tide of my culture and then also growing up in like sort of a post 9-11 world I just felt very, very, very like not proud of my culture growing up. So that was, it was a big part of me that I sort of only celebrated at home and kept hid away during school or any kind of um, social event growing up. But, you know, that, that, I, that's one of the main reasons I'm very thankful for this show and, and thankful for the changing climate of our public opinion in America. Things are getting better, which is really nice. And I was able to um, recently have sort of a, a big renaissance of embracing all of that again. Borski is also an Islamic scholarship funder, ISF scholar, and said he works to increase Arab American and Muslim representation in media to improve public opinion and policy through his work. The ISF has awarded $2.25 million in scholarships and grants since 2009 and has a mission statement that reads, ISF increases American Muslim representation in media and government to improve public policy and public opinion. We believe that the interests of our community can only be protected if we have a seat at the table. Borski applied to the program after his sophomore year at Ithaca College and said the fund helped him pay for his education.
from there, it's sort of like a promise of, okay, we helped you get through school. Now it's your job to go out and, you know, help us with our mission statement, like get out there in whatever fashion media you're in and work for different stories or create your own stories that uh, portray Arabs in a, in a good light and bring um, education to people who, who might be super ignorant about this culture. Originally cast was an offstage understudy for the band's visit. Borsky said he learned the parts and covered for seven different people. If anyone was sick or couldn't perform on a show, Borsky would perform for them. Uh, that was in itself an amazing experience because I got to, I got to experience the show through seven different people's eyes, which I'd never done before, but was such a cool experience. Like I'd go on one night uh, and then the next night I'd go on as the character who I was just speaking to the night before. So it was kind of a wild at the same time um, when I eventually got to take over a permanent role, it, it just gave me this, I knew what all the other characters were feeling. It was just a nice idea to have a whole picture of the show and like what everyone's feeling. And it, it kind of fed into understanding the connection between all the different characters and how they all share the same kind of longing for something. Three quarters of the way through the show, the actor who played Haled left to perform in The Kite Runner, and Borsky was granted the permanent position for the remaining performances. It was I, I did not know that that was coming. I did not see that coming. So it was a huge surprise for me and uh, something that I'm still sort of processing. It happened so quick, and then we only had a couple months before the show closed, so I didn't really get to do it for too, too long, but uh, I'm still very grateful. It was one of the best experiences of my life. In the show, Holland is a young trumpet player in the band. He's cool, adventurous, and a bit of a ladies' man. In one part of the show, he helps a young man from the town overcome his fear of talking to a crush and sing Holland's song about love. I, I don't consider myself to be as uh, as cool as Khaled. So for me, it was really fun to, like, especially stepping into that and being on this, this like, stage every night and sort of having a little bit of imposter syndrome and freaking out. In the first couple of performances, it was so nice to have a character to slip into that was sort of forced to be that cool and suave. So um, honestly, I felt like the character taught me a lot in terms of just breathing and that not everything is really that important <laughs> it's, it's okay to lean back and um take it in i still i still definitely get some stage fright for the first couple performances and then once i get into the swing of things it, it goes away pretty quick and uh for me i think one of my favorite parts of acting is just to be able to slip into somebody somebody else's mind and honestly in the beginning some of the most fun performances that i can even imagine or remember are the ones where i was most nervous and there's just there's something that you can get from that energy that especially if you're sharing it with the people around you, if everyone else on stage is super nervous as well, there's just this, there's this exhilaration that's, that's such an amazing feeling and, and you all kind of work off of it and it feels so real. The tour wrapped up this summer and Borsky said he is going to perform in the show Fun Home at Theater Works in Hartford, Connecticut next. He said the past year was a remarkable experience and while he knows he is young and relatively new to the profession, Borsky said he feels he may never grow tired of freelancing and one day hopes to be in television and films. Right now there's sort of this uh, excitement about the whole freelancing thing and jumping from job to job and you know I, I look at it like I'm never going to get bored. I get to I, I think it's kind of a cool cool way to, to work. You get to do a show, meet a group of people and then um, it's really always sad to say goodbye to that group of people, but I always tell myself I'm going to see them again, or even all the friends I made on the band's visit, most of them live in New York. When I move there, they're going to be there. I feel like I make this huge web of, of really good friends in all these different 
the productions I do and then eventually I get to see them again or see them down the road and I think that's pretty cool to be able to meet people from around the world. For WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Connor Hibbard, and Programming Director Harrison Kona. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Beck Legato, with assistance from News Managing Director Jordan Broking, News Production Director Imbayini Ambarasan, and our Web Coordinator. All music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. For WICB News, I'm Jordan Broking.